Uh, any movie lovers out there? Movie buffs? You just love a good movie. What do you love about movies? What, popcorn. Okay, that's technically not the movie. That's the food, but okay, we'll let that slide. <laughs> what else? What do you love about movies? Adventure. Adventure. What else was there? Excitement. Excitement? Yes, that's what I was thinking, Amy. The tenderness and the feeling. <laughs> the sto- story, the snuggling, yes. Uh, rom-com fans, anybody willing to admit that? Okay, I see a few of those hands. I like rom-coms. Action and adventure. Uh, weirdos that like horror movies. Anybody of those? Yep, a bunch of weirdos. Yep. Um, how many of you like to go to the theater? Oh, gosh, I don't understand you guys. How many of you would just rather watch it at home? I'm the guy that waited until Jurassic World Dominion. I did really want to see that until it came out on Peacock. And then I watched it there just because I didn't want to go to the theater. It's just too much trouble. It's too costly. I don't like the, you know, I know some people love the experience. I'm just weird that way. I get it. You love that experience. You know, it's a great when a movie can grab you from like that opening scene or that opening line. How much time do you give a movie before you turn it off? Five minutes. Okay. Anybody else? How many of you just feel obligated to watch that whole thing from start to finish? <laughs> I love that. I see those hands. That's funny. thought I'd test your movie knowledge this morning a little bit. I got some opening lines from movies. Let's see how smart you are. The first one's pretty simple, though, I think. Here's one. It says, I'm 36 years old. I love my family. I love baseball, and I'm about to become a farmer. But until I heard that voice, I'd never done a crazy thing in my whole life. What's the movie? Field of dreams. Very good. You knew it. All right. Here's another one. I was 12 going on 13. The first time I saw a dead human being. Oh, look at her. Stand by me. Look at that. Very good. What's that? 1980s. Is that when, when that one came out? Something like that. Here's another one. Three billion human lives ended on August 29th, 1997. The survivors of the nuclear fire called the war Judgment Day. Terminator 2. All right, you guys on this side of the room, Lance is carrying this side, man. He's got it. Here's another one. The world has changed. I feel it in the water. I feel it in the earth. I smell it in the air. (laughs) He is correct. The Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship of the Ring. Oh, man. Okay, let's see if you get this one, though. This one I went back a while. He was the most extraordinary man I ever knew. No, no, not, not Gatsby or Gump. This is old. I've never seen this. Close, Lawrence of Arabia. So Ben-Hur was kind of in the right category there. I do love this next one. The key to faking out the parents is the clammy hands. It's a good nonspecific symptom. I'm a big believer in <laughs> Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Here's one maybe a little more challenging, hopefully. I was sitting with my friend Arthur Cornblum in a restaurant. It was a cafeteria, and this beautiful girl walked in, and I turned to Arthur, and I said, Arthur, you see that girl? I'm going to marry her. And two weeks, two weeks later, we were married, and it's over 50 years later, and we are still married. When Harry met Sally, look at Matthew Becker. He was ready on that one. Uh, a couple more. uh, Y'all should get this one. It was the summer of 1963 when everybody called me baby. Dirty dance. That was too easy. I shouldn't have put that one in there. Last one. As far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a gangster. 
Forrest Gump. <laughs> no, not Forrest Gump. Very good. It is it really good, fellas. That is correct. Very, uh, how many of those have you seen? Half of those? Anybody? Okay. Those were kind of very popular. You know what was interesting is I was putting this together, finding opening lines of movies that were significant was very challenging because a lot of movies don't start with like significant opening lines, but it's, it's more the cinematography and those things that movies are focused on. Movies are nice. You know, what I like about a movie is it's one story start to finish. There's a little bit of a commitment, but it's really only, a, you know, an hour and a half to two hour commitment, usually, unless you get into the Lord of the Rings and it's like a three day commitment. But you know, I mean, whereas a TV show, you're in for half an hour for 22 weeks, you know, or in 10 seasons. That's a big commitment, you know. And with a lot of modern storytelling, like television shows, what you'll find is this disconnected, disjointed storytelling, where the only thing that really connects it are the characters that last from episode to episode. But really, the stories don't matter. They just kind of come in and out. Each story is a disconnected moment with no overarching theme or thread to tie it all together. And the reason I say that is because I think we carry that mentality into how we read the Bible. We look at the Bible like we do modern television or even novels, and we read it like, you know, we read a story like Jesus fed the 5,000. Or Moses received the Ten Commandments. And we enjoy the action movies in the Bible. You know, the stories of David and Goliath and Samson and those things. And even sometimes in the stories, we'll find a good moral lesson out of it. You know, we'll, we'll find something that we can learn. But all too often, when we look to the Bible and we read it, it's just another story. And then another story. And we can fail to realize that there's something bigger going on with the Bible. There's something much, there's something there, an overarching narrative, a thread that's running from the opening pages to the end. I mean, the Bible is a collection of 66 writings or books. It's various types of literature. It's history, it's poetry, it's law. Uh, it, there's words of warnings written by prophets to people. There's letters that we have written from one friend to another. This was written over thousands of years by over 40 different people. And through time, these writings have been collected into our Bible. But how do we view that? Well, what I want to challenge us on is to look and say, is it just a, a collection of these disconnected stories or is there something bigger going on? You see, I would say that from the beginning words of Genesis to the final words of Revelation, there is something in the Bible that is tying it all together, and we can miss it if we're not careful. And over the next several weeks, we're going to spend some time digging into the Bible, the book of the Bible, and we're going to discover that it's not these disconnected stories. We're going to discover that it's a carefully crafted story with a beautiful thread, an overarching theme that runs through it. And I want us to see how is this all connected? How is this all put together? And why? Why did God do this? Why has he, has he given it to us this way? So what I want us to look at over the next several weeks is, let's look at the big picture. Let's look at the big picture. So we're not really going to be diving down into specific stories. We're going to be diving in to the major chunks of the Bible to say how, what is God communicating? What does he want us to see? And what's the story, the overarching narrative that we should be making sure we don't miss as we read? 
And as you open the Bible to the very first pages, you go, Pat, you know, our Bibles are nicely presented. We have a, a beautiful cover, you know, often different colors. And then you open it up and look, I, there's a presentation page. I put my name in it so nobody'd steal my Bible. Then there's a cover page. There's a table of contents. There's all the publishing information, alphabetical order books of the Bible. That's helpful. I even have a preface, a preface on how they translated this one. And then I finally get to the Old Testament. And the very first book we find there is Genesis. And Genesis, the name itself, means beginnings. And in the first four words of the book that we have, the opening line of our story, we find the subject. And it's really not just the subject of that, one, that sentence or even just the subject of that chapter, or even the subject of the book, what we find is the subject of the entire Bible. Look at these words on the screen. These are the first four words of Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God. Now, why would I stop there? This verse does continue on. There's a lot of things. We'll look at a little bit more of it in a moment. There's a long chapter behind it, and second chapter also that kind of deals with the same topic. And I realize that when we continue reading Genesis 1, even right here, there can be a bit of a struggle, a debate that seems to be an unresolved conflict between science and the Bible. And we're going to talk about that in just a moment. But before we get there, before we dive into any of the other stuff that Genesis might be doing, what we need to see is that the primary concern right here, setting the stage from the very beginning, in the beginning, God... There's, a, there's something important being communicated. It's not how old the earth is or how long it took God to create it. The primary concern of the creation story is God. It's theology. It's God revealing himself and his purposes to us. Now, we need to wrap our minds around that because what we're going to see is that if we don't grasp this, then what we try to do is we try to take this book, especially the first two chapters, and we try to make it fit a mold or a narrative that I'm not convinced that the original writers of Genesis wanted to make. There's something else going on. The primary concern of the creation story is theology. It's God. But what leads me to that conclusion? Well, when you re read the Bible, hopefully you realize very quickly that it was written not yesterday or even a decade ago. In fact, Genesis was most likely written by or under the direction of Moses. The original audience was ancient Israel, written around 400 BC. Okay, so it's been around a while. And in that day and age, the primary concern the reason this was written wasn't because they were having some huge scientific debate on the origins. How did creation come to be? That's not what the primary concern in the ancient Near East was about. That wasn't even on their radar. In fact, if you look into the original audience, what would they have been confronting at the time? The surrounding nations that were around at that time, everybody had a creation story. You realize that, right? This is not the only creation narrative that exists. All the nations had their own versions of creation, and some of them taught that heaven and earth were made out of the slaughter of a sea monster. Do you know that? That's what their story said. There was a sea monster, and human beings were made from the blood of a slain god. Okay? 
Polytheism at this time was rampant, and worshiping multiple gods was commonplace. And so when you think about that, and you look at Genesis, and it begins with, in the beginning, God. There's a stark difference being made between what we're espousing and believing and what the rest of the world believes. What was the author thinking when he penned those words, in the beginning, God? There's one true God. The author is concerned that we know the who of the story. The who is God. And the entire point of Genesis is to reveal God. It's to reveal God. But it doesn't just end there. It's not just about revealing God. It's also to introduce us to the character of God so that we can understand a little bit more about the subject of the story, a little bit more about this God who is going to create. And so what we see in the beginning of Genesis is a few truths about God. If we keep reading beyond those four words, look at what we find. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. That's such a powerful passage. Let me read it again. It's just so deep and rich in what God is communicating. In the beginning, God created and we're going to talk about what does that created mean? What's the Hebrew word barah mean there? But he created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and empty. And darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. There's so much rich imagery. Darkness and waters. Images of chaos and disorder. In this moment that God is coming into and presenting himself and going to step into and do something about. And what we begin here is what we understand about God is it begins with his eternalness, his eternalness. What we don't see is that in the beginning, God was born. No, just in the beginning, God, God was, God is, God always has been. God is, has always existed. When the world began, God was already there. He is eternal. And because he is eternal, what the writer is communicating is that everything that is finds its existence as a result of God. We are all the result of God and what he has done. But not only that, we see something else about God. We also can see that God is sovereign. What does that mean? Is that he is in control, that he is over all. You see, if God wasn't created, if he existed always, then we have what's called the uncaused cause, that God was, he's always been, no one created him, and he is not, because he has always existed, there's nothing above him. He is the one above all. He is the one that holds everything, has created all, and it's all under his control. One scholar wrote it this way. It said, in creation, we see a demonstration of God's independent, autonomous position as the sole and ultimate source of power and knowledge in the cosmos. There is none like him. There's no competition for him. He alone created, he alone rules, and he alone holds it all together. But then what we also see is not just this eternal sovereign God that exists outside this creation, but then we see a God that is creative. He is creator. In the beginning, God created. And you know, we can use a lot of different words for that word created. 
And we can create in many different ways because that, this word can mean to bring something into existence or it can just mean to bring order to I mean, so if we were to create a work of art, I see Suki sitting back there. And if you don't follow her on Facebook, you should for Suki's fine art. She's an incredible artist. And when Suki creates, she's able to bring this creativeness to a canvas and a paint. But you know what she can't do? She can't speak or think and have paint just appear before her. Her act of creation is taking something that exists and making something new out of it. She's bringing order to disorder, the blank canvas, the chaos that is the canvas. She's bringing order to the different paints that exist and bringing them together in beautiful ways. As I said, the Hebrew word here is bara. And so created can be used in that way. And so sometimes when we look at Genesis 1, we want to say that it's, uh, just so you know, this word barrage used about 50 times in the Old Testament, um, which is fascinating. What's also interesting about this word is that every time it is used, God is the subject. God is the subject. So it shows this is a divine act that God is doing. And it can have other words as the direct object. So like you can see things like we see like create in me a pure heart, O God. Well, who's the subject? God is still the one creating. The object becomes our heart. And so that's part of what we read about this word. So as we read in this word that in Genesis 1 that God creates, what are we, what are we to take away from that? A couple things. One thing that we moved to, I think, initially is what's that God created from nothing. We call that ex nihilo, out of nothing. And certainly I think God did that. God spoke, things were created, things came to be. God created the heavens and the earth. And, but I think as I was studying this week, there was a book that I found very interesting and helpful in my understanding of Genesis 1. It's by a scholar named Dr. John Walton, and the book is called The Lost World of Genesis 1. I highly recommend it because it brings some depth to this passage that I'd never seen before. But what he pointed out was as you read Genesis 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Did anybody notice anything interesting there? Like when we talk about creation, we usually wait until the days to say that's when God created, right? But where did the heaven and the earth from Genesis 1-1 come from if we're not in the days? There's an idea that what if it was? What if it existed? Not that God didn't create it. Yeah, he did. We believe that. But that's not what the author of Genesis is trying to communicate, that there is this existence, this matter that was there, and when God begins to create, he begins to create order. He begins to bring it together because God is not just a God of creator. He's a God of order. There is chaos. What did it say? The earth was formless and void and darkness was on the face of the deep. It's chaos. What is existing is not together. It's just out there. And God, as he begins to do this creative work, begins to bring it together. Walton makes the claim in his book that what God is creating isn't so much materialistic or creating matter as much as he is bringing order to the chaos, which implies bringing it purpose. Now, again, that doesn't mean we're saying God didn't speak and it came to be. I absolutely believe there was nothing but God and God created all that is. But Walton here points out, he says he sees no activity in verse one. So where did the heavens and the earth come from in verse one? 
How do we interpret it? In fact, Walton interprets verse 1 this way. He says, the initial period, God orders the cosmos. This is what he did. And then verse 2 shows that it wasn't lacking matter, but it was lacking order. As I said, it doesn't mean God didn't create. No, he did. But is that what the writer of Genesis is wanting us to see? Kind of fascinating, right? I've never considered that before. It really challenged my way of thinking about Genesis 1. What did the writer want us to see? Well, let's keep going. We'll get there. So as God is a God that is creating, and that creative process is bringing order, what we find is that God is a God that also brings purpose in this, that he creates with purpose. And as he creates, as he brings order to the chaos, it instills purpose in it. It means that it's not an accident. Creation happened because God did something to cause it to happen. And there was a plan in mind when he began. And we're going to continue to see this plan unfold as we talk about the big picture in the coming weeks. And as you continue to read through Genesis, you have this beautiful picture of things coming together. And this is where things get dicey for us sometimes, because as we read Genesis 1, what we want to do is we want to read it with a very literal mind. We want to come at it and it says, well, here is day one, and this is what happens. But what's interesting is if we try to do that, I think we miss the forest for the trees. I think we began to focus so intently on something that wasn't what the writer wanted us to see. We miss God in the process. Don't miss what the author of Genesis 1 is trying to, to do for us, and that is to help us see God. Um, this is important. Why? Because Genesis is theology. It's theology, theos, which is God, and ology, which is the study of or to the word about. Why is this important? Because as we read this chapter in this book, we have to make sure that we're reading it with the proper lenses. And this is critical. You realize that the Bible wasn't written yesterday. You realize that it wasn't written by 21st century Christians. In fact, Walton will remind us, he says, the Bible is not written to us, it's written for us. And there is a deep difference there. This was written to the people in the ancient Near East who didn't have the internet and didn't have smartphones or the scientific method, which is critical for us. We have to keep that in mind. How would we, how would they have read these verses? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What would they have thought? We have to work to put ourselves in the original audience's seats and stop trying to make it say something that the author did not intend. But let's move forward just a little bit because let's come to verse, let's see what else we see about God. We come to verse 26 in Genesis 1. It says, then God said, let us, us is an interesting pronoun there because it highlights the Trinity. Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And so what we see as we get to the end of this first chapter is that God isn't just a God who creates, but he's also this personal God, a God who creates humanity with a desire to know and live in relationship with us. 
And that's exciting. Tim Keller, Pastor Tim Keller said that this is the only religion, this is the only book in which it opens and in the first scene, God has dirt under his fingernails. I love that. God gets his hands dirty. He's making things. He's forming things. And this shows us that he's not some distant deity far away, but instead he's an up-close and personal God involved in his creation. And not only is he involved, he created us to look like him, to be like him, to be his vice regents, his deputies, his stewards, his caretakers of this creation. And remember how I said this isn't the only creation narrative? Humanity in other creation narratives were basically slaves of the gods. They were, you know, entities to be entertained by the gods. You know, you have the stories where gods would do things to humanity in order to just joke around and have fun with them and just, you know, sadistically play with them. This is different. This is not the slaves created to entertain the needs of these vicious gods. This is a God who is saying, no, I want you to be with me. I want you to rule and reign with me in my kingdom. I think that is significant. And if you go back to when this was written, think about how different this would have been to the other creation narratives that were being shared. And how life-changing this would have been to hear a story about a God who shaped and formed you and created you with purpose, on purpose, not for some sadistic plaything, but to rule and reign with your creator. That is life-changing. That is life-changing. But it doesn't in there, and I'm just going to throw this next slide on the screen. You can look at it because the creation also speaks a lot about us. And I just want to run through these real quick because what does creation reveal about us? It shows us that we're God's principal creation. After everything he had done, there's something unique about humanity. We are above the animals. I'm sorry, that's just God has in, in, embedded within us that value. We are God's principal creation made in his image for relationship with purpose and we are dependent on God. And in, as much as we may seek to find our dependence on other things, we're always going to be disappointed. This is just how we were created. And this is important, but I don't want to spend a lot of time here because what I want us to think about real quickly as I wrap up is just this. I think we do have to address the question of, is there a debate, an unresolvable conflict between what the author of Genesis 1 is trying to say and science when it comes to creation. Now, for some of us, maybe you grew up in a system that said, yes, there is. There, it has to be this way. But I'm going to tell you, no, it's not that way. And it really comes down to how we view Genesis 1 as to whether or not this debate, this conflict exists. Does Genesis 1 teach exactly how God created everything and exactly how long it took him to create? I don't think so. There's so much poetry in Genesis 1. It's this beautiful rendering. Oh, my goodness. You see, our modern view, our enlightened view of creation is very concerned with how things are made. One of my favorite shows on television is how it's made. Show me a behind the scenes of anything and I will be right in there with you. But that's not how people lived in the ancient Near East. It's not how they would have even thought about things. 
It wasn't on their radar. John Walton in that book gives a wonderful illustration on this. And he asks this question. Is Genesis 1 about creating a house or is it about creating a home? Think about that for just a moment. What is, let me ask you this. If we were going to create a house, to build a house, what, what, what questions, how would we describe it? What would be important to us if we were building a house? Materials. Materials. How many two-by-fours, right? Measurements, blueprints, plans. How long is construction going to take? These would be the very important things we would want to know, right? But if we are building a home, how would we describe that? What was that? Occupants, the people, the relationships, our identity. Isn't that a beautiful thing, the way to look at this? Do you see the difference? Do you see that maybe what we have been trying to get Genesis 1 to say isn't what Genesis 1 has been trying to communicate all along? The ancient Near East, the most important thing to them would have been order from chaos which was bringing purpose to creation and bringing theology and bringing God to the story of creation. This is about creating a home. That's what this is about. Does that mean that God didn't build the house? No. You see, we can't create this false dichotomy that says, well, if it's about the home, it's not the house. Not at all. God built the house. But that wasn't the concern of the writers in 1400 BC that they were trying to communicate. And here's why this is important. Because there are those that will say to you, you must believe in six literal 24-hour periods of time or your faith will fall apart. But let's take a look at this just for a moment. Day one says what? God created light and dark. Now, how did he do that? Because it's not until day four that we find God creating the sun, moon, and stars. Does anybody else want to know how this works? Puzzling. Puzzling. Well, what if Genesis 1 isn't about creating the day, but it's about ordering time? Day 2, where God, uh, it's, it's the separating the heavens from the waters above and the waters below. But then later you have land and animals and all these. It just doesn't really make sense. What if what we're being shown is God isn't creating something physical, physical, but rather he's ordering things and he's bringing the chaos into control and bringing it purpose. See, there would be those who would say, well, you can't say that. That undermines the authority of the Bible. And no, it doesn't. If anything, it takes a more honest look at how those in the ancient Near East would have read this and not require our 21st century lenses and scientific methods and models to be applied to them thousands of years ago. You see, Genesis 1 is all about God, his story, his relationship with his creation. And what this does is it shows us that instead of science and the Bible being at odds, they're just running on different tracks. They're just not even trying to do the same thing. They're making different truth claims. And think about why this is important. Because if we think the Bible is making a scientific truth claim and science finds something different, what happens to your faith? It all falls apart, doesn't it? 
But if the Bible is focused on theology and who God is, science can do whatever it wants to do, and we can still be fine with it. Okay, because that's not what the Bible is trying to do. You know, if a new discovery happened tomorrow, and they found solid proof that evolution happened, micro and macro evolution, I think we could preach this same message today. Nothing would have to change. Because this message isn't built on what scientific finds and discoveries are available. But if we insist on reading as scientific, I think we risk missing God. We can't ask questions the Bible isn't trying to answer. Because we're not going to ever find it. If we read Genesis and we want it to boil it down to a textbook on how things were made, I think we're going to miss God. Because Genesis isn't as much as the story of creation but rather the beginning of the story of our creator and his interaction with us. Now, I just want you to tell you, there's so much more we could have dealt. This, this could be a six-week series on Genesis 1, and my time is done, and I need to get out of here. But, I mean, we could dive into day seven where God rested. What does that mean? Was God tired from all this creation, needed a nap? No. Do you know what resting in the Bible was about? Kings rested when they were on the throne. That's when God, the order had been brought into the chaos and he was sitting on his throne. And you know what God does on day eight? He rules. You know what he does on day nine? He rules. He had brought the order over the chaos and now there was this system, stability and security. We could have talked about how this is our insight into the trinity of God when God says let us make man in our image and we see father son and holy spirit or go to John 1 1 in the gospel of John how it shows that Jesus was involved in all this creation or the soapbox I didn't get on and you're welcome is how man and woman were created and how Genesis 1 and 2 are not justification for or validation of patriarchy that when God saw that Adam was alone, he created a partner and a helper, not a cook, a maid, and a sex slave. When God calls Eve a helper, it was someone to rule and reign as a vice steward with Adam. And the word helper that is used for Eve is the same word that is used to describe the Holy Spirit. And I don't think any of us would want to look at the Holy Spirit and say, you are less than me. I am the head of the Holy Spirit. And as those people who are supposed to be living in the new kingdom in the way God designed it to be, why would we continue to look at the fall and say, woman, get under me? That's not how God designed it to be. Walton summarized Genesis 1 this way. God, Genesis shows us that God is the creator at every level and in every way. He sustains in the order of the cosmos, not just in the past, but every day. God is integrated in our world. And God created sacred space because really when we jump into Genesis 1, what we see is that God has created the first temple. It's a place for his presence to be with his creation. Now, I don't know about you, but that is a lot more important than what day did God create fish. And we got to stop trying to make it say that. It's just not that way. And so Genesis 1 is this beautiful, wonderful picture of a God who creates, who brings order to our chaos, who brings purpose to our lives. And next week, we're going to figure out how we screwed it all up 
But God didn't run away scared and go, I'm done with you guys. God leans in further to come and show this pursuing God as he continues to redeem and, and create and bring order back. But I do want you to understand one thing. As we read this about God, that he creates everything, it's not, the Bible's not this random collection of stories. I do hope that we see as we go through week after week that the Bible is not about you. Don't need to say that again. The Bible's not about you. It's not about what you need to do. We are characters. We are players in this picture, in the great picture, big picture that God is doing here. But it's not about you. It's not about me. It's about him. And it's not about what we need to do, but it's already about what God has already done. And isn't that exciting? So come back next week for part two as we look at what does humanity do when we're living in perfection for a little while and how even then in perfection we think, oh man, wouldn't we love to live in utopia? Yeah, even there we find a way to screw that up. Man, we have a pursuing God. And I want you to hear this morning, God loves you. He created you. He has purpose for you. You are made in his image. You have value and worth, not because I say it, but because has God, God has stamped that onto your life. And whatever chaos may be in your life, God is still in the creation business of bringing order to the chaos. And he desires that for your life. And he's offering that for us to live in relationship with him through Jesus Christ and what, what he's done for us on the cross. Let's pray.